everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genesis. My name is Jonathan Chan, and I'm just so glad that you can join me today as we continue our journey through the first book of the Bible. Before we begin, customarily we start off with a video clip, and so sit back, relax, and enjoy the video clip, and we'll be right back. You heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes ripe. They're so perky. I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards and he cheated. Liar! Which? I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be dead anymore. You never had it so good. To love. He said to love, Max. Don't say My another God. word, Valerie. He's afraid. Ever since Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. What? Humperdinck? Humperdinck! 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 I'm not listening! Love lies expiring, and you don't have the decency to say why you won't help. Nobody's here, nothing. Welcome back. There are folks who, out of love, identify our character flaws and sometimes suggest ways to improve our character flaws. We also have folks who identify our sin just because they really desire us to be in a right relationship with God. They're not obligated to invest their time and energy into us. They could have just walked away, ignore it, and quite frankly, avoid getting lashed at or accused of being judgmental by us. But because they see something in us, they see the God-given vision in us, and they see how important it is to live a life of trust and obedience to God and how amazing life can be when you trust and obey God. They invest their time and energy into us while risking getting ridiculed and rejected by us. Why do they do it? Why do they identify our sin? Because they know that if we continue, not only if we lose sight of God's vision and stray away from God, but we will also likely get ourselves hurt and hurt others in the process. Sometimes they even go to great lengths and drastic measures to do it, to wake us up and to help us realize our sin. Like Miracle Max on the video, his wife pointed out his insecurities and flaws because she knew that her husband was able to fulfill his calling in resurrecting whoever that guy was on the table. He had purpose. He had potential, yet he was ignoring it because of his insecurities and character flaws. So his wife comes out uh, and identified his flaws. Yet while risking, and she knew it, while risking being ridiculed and be called a witch by her own husband. Now, previous sermons 
there was one sermon that I said that God provides us with the Labans in our lives to mature our faith in him. Well, similarly, God provides us with folks who put a mirror in front of us to make us realize of our own sin so that we can mature in our faith and continue to pursue our God-given vision. Mirrors, folks that are like mirrors, who identify or call out our sin. And what's important is how we respond. See, today, we will be looking at Genesis 38. Tamar, a Canaanite woman, a foreigner, had no reason to stay with this screwed up family. She was rejected, abused, exploited, and violated. Yet she remained faithful, not to the family, but to their God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She was faithful to Yahweh, and therefore Judah declared her as righteous at the end of the passage. And because of her faithfulness, she became part of the whole redemptive story where one of her descendants happens to be King David. But most importantly, the ultimate descendant is Jesus. So what happened to Tamar? What made her to stick around with this family? Why was she declared righteous by Judah? And what did she really desire in this family that made her to go to drastic measures. Let's begin. Starting with verse 1 in chapter 38. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. Alright, so the previous chapters in chapter 37, we came to realize that these brothers, including Judah, uh, sold their younger brother Joseph, this little brat, and they sold him off. So, after the fact, after he sold his brother, Judah decides to leave his entire family and move to Canaanite, uh, move to a Canaanite city called Adullam, where he became good friends and chummy chummy with a Canaanite man named Hira, who happens to be a good influence, or actually a bad influence, to Judah, because he was mentioned a few times in this story. What's wrong with this picture? What have we learned thus far whenever any member of this family gets too chummy-chummy with foreigners? Well, they lose sight of their God-given vision. That's one. They stray away from God. They disobey God's commands. And they become so comfortable with sin that they can't even notice sin, even if sin was smacked right in front of their faces. That's why Abraham and Isaac were so adamant for their sons not to intermarry with foreigners. God gave them a specific mission, a God-given vision. And if others aren't on the same page, that vision risks being compromised. So for Judah to leave his family, the author is stressing the point that Judah is not only leaving his family, he is abandoning God's given vision for him, turning away from God, and mingling with sin. This is not going to end well. Let's move on to verse 2. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. 
appears to not even care about God's vision anymore. Judah sees a Canaanite woman, he likes, and then he takes her. Absolutely no spiritual discernment or even consider if his actions would jeopardize the God-given vision that was given to his entire family. All of Abraham's faithfulness appears to have no weight in Judah's decision-making. Judah just says, me want, me take. Let's not lay the hammer on Judah for a moment, though. We probably made decisions similar to Judah's, that we probably should have consulted with God first. In Judah's case, the example is relationships. But because of timing, maybe, or biological clocks, or just pure pragmatics, or because everyone else is doing it, we, like Judah, skip the spiritual, spiritual discernment and just do it because me want, me take. Judah takes this unnamed woman and has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And because Judah is the way he is, with no spiritual discernment, pretty much chin deep in sin, and have completely lost sight of God, his sons weren't the best kids either. Let's move on. Verse 6. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Man, he had to be really horrible and wicked in order for God to take his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Ur, again, as I mentioned before, was so wicked that the Lord took his life. Now, did God kill Ur? I'm not sure. But, you know, Israel was to be a holy nation, separated for God's purpose, and highly noticeable as a light, a pure holy light. And anything that was unholy needed to be eradicated. Now, for God to take Ur's life, Ur must have been horribly wicked. So wicked that God saw it necessary for Ur to go bye-bye because he would have been a bad influence. Then there was Onan, because he knew that his inheritance needed to be split with Ur's offspring, he made sure that Tamar would not get pregnant. So for that, the Lord took his life as well because of his wickedness, selfishness, and really, quite frankly, this is the worst of them all, using Tamar as merely for pleasure. We can safely deduce that Sheila is no better. So, like the previous stories of the screwed up family, the question is, is there any way God can still fulfill his vision with this family? Let's move on. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, get out of here. Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Sheila is old enough to marry you. Now, this is the important uh, paraphrase here. Uh, parenthesis, I mean. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Sheila would also die like his two brothers. 
So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Basically, Judah didn't want Tamar around anymore. In other words, out of sight, out of mind. Instead of caring for her, he tossed her back without any intention of fulfilling his responsibilities of looking after her. Notice that Judah didn't make any connection or any correlation between his son's wickedness with God's judgment. Instead of making the connection saying, oh, maybe my sons, the reason why they died was because of their sin, he came to believe that Tamar was bad luck, i.e. he was superstitious. He was so entrenched in sin, so accustomed to the Canaanite way of life that he completely didn't see the connection between his sin, his son's sin, and God's judgment on them. Instead, he drew the conclusion that Tamar was just a bad luck charm and needed to be removed. Out of sight, out of mind, he says. Completely losing sight of the God-given vision, and instead of being a blessing to the nations, Judah became a stinker. Just like his dad. Tamar has absolutely no reason then to stick with him, right? Why would she? She was exploited, abused, used as a sex toy, and now not even cared for and just tossed out to the corner, the side corner street, back to her home. She didn't have to stick with this family. Verse 12. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adjumamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Now, the shearing of his sheep is basically a big, humongous, drunken party. This is where all the shepherds just party it up, you know. Uh, I've never seen shepherds partying before, but I guess uh, they party hard. So, okay, let's move on. Verse 13. Someone told Tamar, Look! Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. He's going to get drunk. Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. Interesting point to be made here. Tamar is still wearing widow's clothing she basically could have taken those things off and married somebody else. Like, she had every opportunity, every right to abandon the screwed-up family who abused her and marry someone else, probably another Canaanite. There was nothing to stop her, yet she kept her widow's clothing on. She was back at her parents' home and kept her widow's clothing. She didn't take it off. Why? Why was she so adamant in going back to Judah's family and be part of his household. She didn't see the way of the world the same way. She could have left, went to her normal life, but she kept on sticking with it. So much so that she went against norms, she sacrificed her own body and take a leap of humongous moral compromise to stick with his family. Why? What was so important to her that she took these drastic measures in disguising herself as a shrine sex slave? Let's move on. Verse 15. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had her covered face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you. He said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law because he was quite drunk. 
How much will you pay to have sex with me? Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat? She asked. What kind of guarantee do you want? He replied. She answered, Leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. It's almost like leaving your driver's license with a prostitute. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. The author again emphasizes that Judah appears to be a lost cause. He sees, he wants, and he takes. He has absolutely lost his moral compass, and under the influence of an all-night partying from celebrating the sheep searing, he sees a disguised Tamar, not knowing that she's his daughter-in-law, and demands to sleep with her and treat her like a commodity. Tamar knew this. What is motivating again Tamar to do this? She's already been abused by this family and tossed away by Judah. Why is she going through all the trouble to reduce herself further and trick her father-in-law? But brilliantly also to keep his driver's license. Verse 20. Later, Judah asked his friend Hera the Adumite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hera couldn't find her, so he asked the men who lived there, Where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance to Enam? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hera returned to Judah and told them, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claimed they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be a laughingstock of the village if I went back to try to get my driver's license in that brothel. You get what I'm talking about? Interesting that Judah fulfilled his promise with a shrine prostitute, but didn't fulfill his promise with his own daughter-in-law. We also come to realize that Judah had a lot of pride. He didn't want to be a laughingstock. He knew that he was wrong sleeping with a prostitute, but because of his pride and his lack of or next to nil spiritual discernment, he just left it as that. No repentance, no remorse. The author described Judah as just another guy going about life, blending in with the world around him as opposed to fulfilling his God-given vision of being a light. Let's move on. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. Wow, that was fast. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Burned. Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Sheila. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. Yes! I finally can get rid of this pain-in-the-butt Tamar. That's pretty much what Judah is thinking, or was thinking when he said, Burner! Look how quickly he immediately placed judgment on Tamar. Just a few words from a mere testimony of one person, and he was ready, without any hesitation, to kill his daughter-in-law. This guy really wanted to get rid of Tamar. He tried to get rid of her by shipping her away, hoping that she would forget about Sheila, but she didn't since she was still wearing widow's clothing. So how else was there, <laughs> so what else to do to remove this problem because she's sticking around for some odd reason? 
So the opportunity arose when she was caught committing prostitution. Yes, problem solved. But wait, Tamar brings Judah his ID card, sort of like accidentally leaving your credit card with the massage parlor, and the message par massage parlor shows your wife your credit card. Caught. Judah's caught. Now, Judah has some options here on how he should respond. He could, A, become defensive and find an excuse as to how Tamar ended up with his credit card. He could have said, well, you know, somebody might have stole my credit card and used it over there at the massage parlor. B, he could have discredited Tamar since she is a Canaanite. In other words, hey guys, come on, would you ever trust a Canaanite? I don't trust a Canaanite. Do you trust a Canaanite? Or C, repent and acknowledge that he's been a douchebag all along. Judah made the right choice. He chose option C. He declared Tamar as righteous, more righteous than he was. The very person who was a descendant from Jacob, who was supposed to be the anointed patriarch to carry on this God-given blessing, God-given vision, who was supposed to be faithful and righteous, submits, repents, and says, this Canaanite is more righteous than I. The more literal translation of this Hebrew verse is, she's righteous, I'm not. Righteous. Where else have we seen this word used within this family? You know, this Abraham family. Well, right in the beginning, God with Abraham. Chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in God's given vision for him and obeyed God, and God declared Abraham as righteous. Judah used the same Hebrew word for Tamar. Tamar believed in God's given vision for his family more than Judah himself. Tamar wanted to be part of God's covenant with Israel and went to great, extraordinary, and drastic measures to be part of God's covenant. Whereas Judah, he just threw it away and left. He didn't value this covenant at all. Tamar revealed to Judah how much he has strayed away from his God-given vision and how he threw away God's promise for his own pleasure. Tamar revealed Judah's sin like a mirror, and Judah responded correctly. He repented. So to conclude, initially, we as Christians, I don't know about you, but I'm a Christian. If you're a Christian, great. Christians are given the Holy Spirit when they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What does he do for us? Well, when we do something wrong or displeasing to God, the Holy Spirit nudges us and stirs our hearts in the effort to turn us back towards God. We are given a choice to either submit to the Spirit or ignore him. When we ignore him, we become like Judah. The more we get comfy with our sin, the more we ignore the Holy Spirit, we lose sight of what's pleasing to God, and worse, we no longer feel the Holy Spirit's nudging. We become null to his voice. We may justify our sins, saying that we're not hurting anyone. I hear that often. But we forget that we are, it's not about people that we're hurting, although that is usually the consequence. We are really hurting God's heart, who loves us so much who sacrificed his own son 
for us. We neglect our God-given vision and we throw away his promises for us. It's as if we don't value his son's death, as if we don't value Jesus' death for us. Then, fine, we lose sight of what is sin and what's not and we nullify the Holy Spirit's voice. What does God do then? God gives us Christians to warn us that the way we're headed is towards a cliff. Do we listen and heed their warnings? Turn our lives back to God and repent? Or do we respond defensively or lash out at them, accusing them as being judgmental or self-righteous or just plain ignore them? And to some of my examples that I've seen, leave the church. Folks, the folks who God provides to warn us, they see the God-given vision in us. They see potential in us. And also know that God's promises far outweigh our immediate desires. God's promises far outweigh whatever we want that would compromise his promises. For Tamar, God's promise for his people far outweigh how she was treated by this screwed up family. She believed deep in her heart in their God. She believed in their God-given vision and wanted so desperately to be part of it that she, that she sacrificed herself for it. She also knew that Judah needed to pull up his socks and be the patriarch that God called him to be, or else this whole God-given vision and the blessings would be jeopardized. That's why Judah declared that she was righteous. And because she was righteous, she became the matriarch of not only King David, but also became part of God's vision for the world, i.e. she was the matriarch of Jesus. She was mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew, if you recall. When we are warned by Christians who love us, let's take those warnings seriously and don't ignore them. Let's not lash out at them. Let us not say they're self-righteous or they're being judgmental to us. Let's take them to heart, meditate over them. It could possibly be that God is using them as a mirror in front of us to reveal our sins and a chance to turn back to God's given vision, to turn back and pursue God's given vision through repentance and confession. God's promise and his God-given vision for each of us far outweighs whatever we want and whatever we want to have in this world. Amen.